morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Kevin Chilton, Explorer Chair of Space Warfighting Studies at the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence. And welcome to our Schriever Space Power Forum Series. We're very pleased to have the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Space Acquisition and Integration, the Honorable Frank Calvelli with us today. Secretary Calvelli is responsible for all architecture and integration with respect to acquisition of space systems and programs in the armed forces, chairing the Space Acquisition Council and overseeing and directing the Space Acquisition Centers in the Department of the Air Force. He also serves as the Department of the Air Force Service Acquisition Executive for space systems and programs. Secretary Cavelli has more than 34 years of experience in national security space acquisitions, operations, and leadership in the National Reconnaissance Office and the Central Intelligence Agency. He's held a variety of senior positions, including satellite and ground system acquisitions, systems engineering, and mission operations. Prior to joining the Department of the Air Force, Secretary Cavelli served for eight years as the principal deputy director director of the National Reconnaissance Office, where he managed the day-to-day -day operations of the 3,500 plus person intelligence community agency. Welcome, Mr. Secretary, and thanks for making time to join us today. And I'd like to kick things off by giving you the opportunity to give everyone on the net here uh, some opening thoughts and remarks. General Chilton, thank you so much. It is great to see you, sir. It's uh, thank you to the Mitchell Institute for hosting me today. Um, this is my first I'll say public interview on camera, and uh, I'm excited to talk about the direction we're heading in. The, um, this, this job is an amazing opportunity to really help set the direction for the Space Force acquisition for, for decades to come. Um, my hope is to bring my experience from the NRO um, to, this, to the department and to really help them out where I can in terms of uh, space acquisition. And uh, it's also really exciting opportunity just to be back in government and back working with the amazing leaders like Secretary Kendall, uh, General Raymond, who I'm big fans of, and uh, being able to really support and help them drive the future of space. I think there's no more important time than now for space. Space is just an amazing enabler for the country. It supports the nation's economy. It supports our military. It supports all the services in the department. And so space to me is just so important, so critical and I'm uh, very excited to be in this opportunity. So I look forward to your questions. Great, well, again, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. If I could um, reflect back on Secretary Kendall's seven operational imperatives, which he, he uh, you know, articulated when he first came into his position. The first one is defining resilient and effective, a resilient and effective space order of battle and architecture. Um, he's in, he stated this imperative is the broadest and probably the most has probably the most potential impact on the future of the DoD. Um, when you testified to Congress and during your confirmation hearings in May, you you presented five themes. Could you perhaps expand on those themes, which were which relate directly to Secretary Kendall's first operational imperative? Yeah. So so as I started this whole process of of coming back into government to this job. I had a chance to keep up and, uh, and just kind of really, it took a while. So I had time to really kind of learn what was going on in the environment. And so I'll be honest, I, I read the papers as much as I could. There's some really great writers out there doing some really good articles about space acquisition. 
I read reports from the Mission Institute. I watched many videos that were on the Space Power uh, Forum. I read uh, CSIS documents. I read uh, GAO reports, lots of GAO reports on space acquisition. I mean, here's a stack from just the past few years. And with all those things in mind and watching General Raymond speak at hearings, uh, Secretary Kendall speak at hearings, I, I devised, in my NRO experience, I devised five priorities that I wanted to come into, the, uh, into this administration with. And um, I highlighted some of them at my actual hearing back in February, and then I, I updated them a little bit, and I highlighted them back in, uh, back in May at my first hearing. But there's really five things I wanna drive here. First is speed, right? And we all, we've all said that in every article out there, but speed in our acquisitions, and why is that important? Because I will tell you, these operational imperatives are critical. These are the department's imperatives. It's gonna allow us to modernize our service and allow us to stay technologically ahead of our adversaries. And if necessary, it's gonna allow us to deter, defend or defeat any adversary. And I think it's really critical at this point in time that we take those operational imperatives and we execute them. So, so speed is this, my, my thing, one thing for space is speed. There's a real sense of urgency to get new capabilities into the hands of the warfighter faster and to maintain our technological advantage. The second priority I have is, is very consistent with all of the OIs, which is to make our architecture more resilient. And that's gonna be key because our nation does depend on space, both in peace, as well as times of crisis and conflict. So it's really important that space is always available to the nation, no matter what the environment is. A third piece is, is integrating our space architecture into other warfighting domains, which is very consistent and, and follows through with the OIs as well. I, I think space is such an important enabler, and I think our ability to integrate space with land, air, and sea gives our warfighters an advantage, and I look forward to seeing how I could help make sure that happens. The next one is really a little bit different. It's really a focus on project management discipline. I think there's no better way than to actually get some speed is to actually deliver on your commitments and actually execute your programs on cost and schedule. So one of my, my fourth priority is to really drive project management discipline across the, the service. And then, and then fifth, and I got this from reading a lot of GL reports, we seem to have a disconnect with space and ground systems where, where we'll launch something, but the ground's just not ready yet or a user terminal's just not ready yet. And so my fifth priority is to ensure that the space and ground systems come together as an integrated system so that when we launch the systems, we can take full advantage of them. So those are really my five themes. They are, they are based upon um, our operational imperatives as well as other things that I've seen and in, in, out in reports. Thank you. Um, you know, over the years, uh, I've heard um, people say, well, the Air Force has their way of doing, and now the Space Force acquisition and the NRO actually has their way of doing it. And various sides will say one is better than the other. But you're in a unique position here to have, uh, have had great experience in the acquisition side of the NRO. And um, is there anything that you've observed immediately or in the near term that you, that you think you want to bring to the Department of Defense in, um, that can help with your five imperatives, particularly the first and the last, uh, speed, and then also uh, program management effectiveness. Yeah, so there's a, there's several things I, I probably will borrow from my experience at the NRO. Um, there, there, there's a real solid project management culture at the NRO. And so our program managers, when I was there, and they still today, 
pride themselves on delivering on cost and schedule. That, that was a big push for us. You know, when, when years ago, the NRO had challenges with a major acquisition called FIA. It, mm-hmm. uh, it hurt our reputation immensely. Um, I think that uh, we had a great director for eight, uh, seven years with Betty Sapp, and she did a magnificent job between her, our current director, Chris Galise, and before them, Bruce Carlson, and really helping to restore the reputation of the NRO from an acquisition perspective. And the NRO has gotten really, really good at delivering on-cost, on-schedule meeting performance requirements. And it's a, it's a culture. And I, I, I really hope to kind of steal some of the lessons I ha- I've learned at the NRO to bring that culture to Space Systems Command, the Space Development Agency, and the, the Space Rapid Capabilities Office. That's terrific. You know, you know you, in your priorities, uh, you mentioned resilient architecture, uh, offensive and defensive um, deterrent capabilities. It seems like there's a lot to do simultaneously here. Have you thought about uh, prioritization uh, as you go forward here, or that would be done by other parts of the department and your job is just to deliver? How do you fit into that? So, you know, you, you know the biggest surprise and a happy surprise that I have had is I am so impressed with the portfolio of programs across the department. I mean, there is a lot of great work going on in all those areas, more than I imagined, because obviously I wasn't cleared or read in and I, and I, and I, could, I really couldn't engage anybody until I actually got confirmed. They, they have really done a magnificent job with a bunch of activities. I see my job, my, one of my top priorities is executing. I, I need to deliver on the things that got started over the last couple of years. And I think it's gonna make our Space Force and our Department of the Air Force a much stronger organization in terms of capabilities for the warfighter. And so executing to plan is really one of my top priorities because I am just so happy with the portfolio that, that I've inherited. Are there any uh, immediate problem areas that you've uh, kicked a rock over and found that have gotten uh, your attention that you can talk about? There may be some that you can't talk about, but anything that, that you've noticed that, um, that immediately brings to mind from your point of view, this is something we have to change or fix? Not quite yet. I'm, I'm just still getting fire hose with all of the activities here across the board. And uh, yeah, you know, interview me six months from now and I'll, I'll tell you what I find. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Um, the SDA is going to transition into the Space Force in, in the near, near term. And uh, I understand you visited in your first week, you visited the Space Development Agency out in Chantilly, and you said you were excited about them coming on board and expressed how impressed you were with their proliferated LEO constellation and tranche one for communication satellites. Um, General Raymond says they're almost part of the family. So, I mean, it's, it's coming up soon. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, your views on how they will be integrated into the current acquisition force and uh, how, how you see bringing them together and moving forward? Yeah, so at first, I do love their architecture. I, I love proliferated LEO. I think it's a, a great um, match and balance for some of the more traditional larger systems that have been built over the decades that are, that are important systems as well. But that additional proliferation is going to add a layer of resiliency that we really, really need. And so I, I love that piece of it. I love the fact that they're building smaller satellites. You really, truly can build smaller satellites faster than bigger satellites. It's, it's you know, just the, the, the physics behind it. And I will tell you, building small satellites is not easy. 
what, what I found from my experience at NRO is that it's just as complicated to build a small one as a big one, but it does, you can go faster, but you tend to want to have some of your best program managers work in the smaller stuff like the SDA folks have doing on there. So they're doing really great work. And I also like their ground architecture because it's separate from the main Space Force architecture out of Colorado Springs. And to me, that adds another level of resiliency. So I get resiliency added by their architecture through um, proliferated satellites. We get speed to market over on these two-year tranches. We get tech refresh a lot faster. And we also get uh, a, a unique ground system that, that allow more resiliency. Um, so what I need the team to do at SDA when they come on board in October is to execute. I need them to deliver Tranche Zero. They've got a launch coming up this fall, which, uh, which is on target to, to achieve for Tranche Zero for the first launch. Um, they've got great work going on with Tranche One. So it's really executing Zero and One and defining what's in Two and getting that under contract and under plan. As far as the transfer goes, it's, it's been going great. I, I'm not a big org structure kind of person. I'm not going to reorganize and combine this and combine that. SDA is going to come in as a whole, and they're going to behave just like they behave today. And so instead of the SDA team reporting up through R&E, the SDA team comes on board and reports up through the Department of the Air Force. And so, so far, the transfer has been pretty simple because we're making it simple. And I'm really excited about uh, Derek Ryan and the team coming over. Terrific. Um, if I could switch to um, NRO or go back to NRO and U.S. Space Force collaboration perhaps. Senator King, the chairman of the SAS Strategic Forces Subcommittee, spoke of the synergy between Space Force and the NRO. Uh, do you see opportunities there uh, for collaboration between the NRO and the US Space Force, whether it be on the acquisition side or other areas? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so clearly there's been a, an amazing collaboration for the last decade in terms of space protection. Um, that's been going on for a long, long time. There's a great relationship between the NRO, and before that was, this, was, the, was the Air Force and Space Command, now it's US Space Command and, and the Space Force. And that continues to this day under the NRO leadership, which is awesome. Um, so yeah, and, there, and there's, a, there's a joint effort out there you may have heard of called Silent Barker. And uh, between the, it started with the Air Force, the NRO, and now it's the Space Force, the NRO. And I, I could imagine down the road, there could be other joint efforts that could occur. We'll, we'll have to see what happens over time. So I'm, uh, I'm always open for those. But I will tell you, you know, I mentioned to you, I, I would kind of borrow from the NRO the, and try to use their project management culture. There's a few other things I, I want to borrow from them as well. They've gotten really good over uh, the last few years of really pushing for cost realism and schedule realism in their competitive RFPs. And one of the biggest challenges we have today is, is when we get an RFP that we award that's not executable. And that ends up causing rebaselining and, re, and uh, replans and slows things up. So they've gotten really good at, at driving cost and schedule realism. And I'm going to probably borrow those techniques on, 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 the, on the space force side of the equation. There's some really great system engineering things they do there that I may borrow. Um, they've got a lot of really great ground lessons learned. They've been ahead of the curve in terms of trying to do unique things with cloud computing, um, mission frameworks, mission applications, and they've it's, you know, they've got a lot of lessons learned that I hope to take advantage of as we try to drive our ground more in that direction. I, you know, I was never, I was never a fan of fixed price contracting until, um, until, until Troy Mink came back to the NRO and, and Troy is one of the most amazing individuals out there. And I've become a fan. 
And I think that uh, fixed price contracting is, is not a bad approach for space things. You, if, you, if you've seen space development agencies doing a lot of fixed price contracting as well, um, I think there was an article by NASA a few months back that said they want to go fixed price contracting. And I will tell you what, sir, the worst thing you want to be is a cost plus program inside a factory that has everything going through a fixed price because you will end up paying the bills, you will end up being late, and you will end up being behind schedule. And so there's a lot of benefits to fixed price contracting that I think we need to explore on the space for side of the house. And um, but so I so those are techniques and things that I've experienced at the NRO that I, I hope to potentially borrow and bring to the to the Space Force. Well, thanks, Kevin. Let's let me explore some of the, your thoughts there based on those comments. So I personal opinion, I think the DOD suffered from um, some ill effects from the LPTA approach, lowest price technically acceptable, which turned a lot of program competitions into a price shootout and perhaps drove unrealistic cost and schedule estimates in, into the bids that ultimately were accepted. Um, did the NRO avoid that? And, and your thoughts on, is that something to, to continue to avoid? And, and as you look at uh, putting out RFPs? Yeah, so it's not, it's not even LPTA that drives that behavior. It's just the competitive environment. And um, no, we, we, we were unable to avoid, I'll say, low bids, right? Or unrealistic schedules, unachievable, unachievable cost. And you know what that does to you is you end up you know, spending the first year of the program setting an integrated baseline review, your IVR to set your baseline. And then you realize when you get there, ah, there's no way in hell I'm going to meet this. So you're instantly in an ECP and a replan, right? You, you know. And so the trick is, how do you avoid doing that? And, and the idea that we, at the end of we came up with a few years back was to score cost realism and to score schedule realism as part of the competitive factors in the RFP. And that seems to be working for us. So if you low bid it, and you know, we've all, whether you're the DOD or NASA or the IC, we've all gotten good at independent cost estimating of space programs. And so, you bring your independent cost folks on your cost team with you. And if they tell you, ah, I think they're a little business, you could rate them a high risk and throw that proposal out. And I, I think, you know, the best ways that we truly can actually execute and deliver are, um, are a few steps. The first is on the government side is setting good acquisition strategies and contract strategies. And that includes the contract type and the incentives. So you gotta really have that up front, right? Then you need industry to, to, to submit bids that are realistic cost, realistic schedule that they actually execute so that you set a good baseline, right? We all, like I said, the biggest mistake we all make across the board, across government is setting a bad baseline and having to fix it. Third, you have to properly resource the program across the FIDIP, right? You gotta make sure the program manager has what he or she needs they have a little bit of margin. You're not too far off of the independent cost estimates. You use the ICES where you can. Um, but it's really important that you properly resource the program. Fifth, I would say, is our government PMs need to proactively manage the baseline. They need to be proactively managing cost, schedule, and performance. You know, I call it kind of the relentless pursuit of program management discipline. And that's one thing that we did at the NRO is we have some amazing, we have, I always say we, they have some amazing program managers that know how to effectively manage proactively their programs. And that is really a key for us is to stay on top of issues, resolve issues, and make sure we're sticking on costs and schedule. 
And then fifth and most important is this is a partnership with the industry. We need industry to actually execute. So bid it, baseline it, execute it. Deliver on your commitments, deliver on costs, deliver on schedule. And it could be a win-win and it should be a win-win for both sides. And when you look at all these GAO reports, right? Behind schedule, behind cost, everything. You, you drive that discipline into it and you're going to start to achieve some speed. And, uh, it's in, in a, and, you know, so I think it's really, really critical to drive that discipline across the board. You know, um, uh, let me ask you about tenure of your program managers when you're at the NRO uh, to get that expertise and maintain it. Um, I don't know the answer to this question where, where your program managers long tenured uh, and then contrast that to the Air Force, which with its upper, upper out promotion system seems to, in many cases, flow program managers through on two or three year intervals, which can affect continuity of, of the program. Your, your thoughts on that? So, so this, you know, the NRO has a, a third of its workforce was military. And uh, they came through and they were amazing program managers. Um, and, but, you know, we also had a civilian workforce as well. And they tend to be tenured a lot longer, obviously, because of civilians. I think, I think the key for that I have seen both at the program level and at the senior level is to put the right people in the right jobs. I mean, you really, you have to have skills in space acquisition to be in charge or lead space acquisition, right? There's a, there's a culture out there in government that any leader can do any job. No, they can't. You actually have to have skills to do a job. If you put someone in a job that doesn't have space acquisition experience, they are not going to be successful. You need people who actually have experience, whether that comes from the military or comes from a civilian. The right thing and why programs succeed is by putting the right program managers and the right leadership in the jobs. I will tell you that, you know, I found at the NRO when we had the right people in charge, there was nothing we couldn't do. And when we had people who were good people but didn't have the background or the skills, no matter how hard they tried, they just didn't have the experience to do it. Space is hard. It's people with experience and skills that'll get you be successful. Great. Can I go back to your contracting comments about firm fixed price versus- Absolutely. Um, in, um, I, I'm assuming you're not ruling out cost plus as a, an option when it comes to a high risk, new development technology type program. Correct. Okay. I, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, you, you think about, right, we want to go fast, which means if we're smart, we use existing technology where we can and uh, take a page out of SDA's playbook, which is use kind of what you can get and go off and build on two year centers. What what's hard about the five to seven year kind of development cycles is the tech refresh, right? You're, you get these things up there and they last a long time, which is awesome. But, you know, the technology is changing so quickly on the ground. If you do more smaller systems with shorter design lives as well, because launch has become so much more affordable, which is great for the nation, then you can take more advantage of technology faster. And so, uh, so when you start using existing technology capabilities and you want to go fast, fixed price helps in that as opposed to cost plus. Okay. And uh, one more question on firm fixed price, and I'm, I'm sure companies at all levels, whether they're in space otherwise, are thinking about, and that is the inflation we're seeing today and the supply chain issues we're seeing, which, which creates uncertainty in their ability to deliver on, on the firm fixed price type of contract. Do you, do you envision having some kind of 
safety net or parachutes in there so that uh, companies can continue to uh, uh, execute in an, what is probably an uncertain future here for the, the near term. Sure, I think that's very reasonable. I mean, there's always things like reasonable equitable, equitable adjustments, REAs. Um, but uh, at the same time, though, given that we know what the environment is now, I would imagine that anybody who's bidding on a program that whether it's cost plus or fixed price would work in the fact that there are issues with supply chain in some cases, and there are issues in terms of with inflation. So I would imagine that if you're a, a smart company and you're not trying to low bid, but do what it takes to do the job, you would put, bid the resources, whether it's fixed price or cost plus. Okay, very good. Well, thank you for that. I think that's, that's gonna be very helpful to our industry partners to hear your, your thoughts and views on this going forward. Um, and if I could shift, shift gears here a little bit, part of the reason for establishing the Space Force was to bring every all the, the various space things that are going on in the Department of Defense under one centralized authority. And that would be true in the acquisition area as well. Um, but you know, I've been reading that the Army has their own low Earth orbit investment strategy where they plan to acquire and operate their own tactical layer in LEO to provide SATCOM, PNT, and tactical ISR. Should that, you know, am I hearing that right? A, B, if I am, why wouldn't that be under the responsibility of the Space Force to do? Right. So, so I will tell you, I'm actually very happy with the portfolio that I have, right? I've got the amazing folks at Space Systems Command. I've got the amazing folks at Space Rapid Capabilities Office. And I've got the, the great folks at Space Development Agency coming in in October. So I am more than happy with the portfolio that I have. The, um, Congress gave me this amazing tool called the Space Acquisition Council to use as an integrating function across the department. And so my intentions are for programs like that, if that exists, that to use this, the SAC as a tool to understand what's going on there and to make sure it's fully integrated in with the department and that we all can take advantage of space from across the board. Um, I'm still learning all the space for side of the house programs and down the road, I'll get to understand a little bit better what the Army's working on. Okay, but but... If the Army is going to have their own space program and then any other services, that, that seems to be uh, contrary to the intent of standing up in the Space Force, it, it, just in my humble opinion. Would, would, do you I, see it, it's okay to have another service, other services to be? I, I really haven't. I, so I haven't really thought much about it. And, and again, I, I think the Hill was very, very wise in forming this Space Acquisition Council for that reason of there might be you know, occasional thing here or there across the department to use that as an integrating function to make sure everyone understands what everybody else is working on and to make sure it's integrated in with the whole architecture. So, um, yeah, it doesn't phase me at all. Okay. Um, if I could shift then to talk a little bit about uh, our commercial, the commercial industry out there, commercial space industry. Um, you know, there's a mixture of private investment, venture capital, new suppliers, established companies, some unproven companies that have great ideas and models. You know, given this environment, uh, what steps do you envision taking to leverage the commercial sector? And can you share any thoughts you have on hedging against their ability to reliably deliver commercial capabilities to the DOD? Yeah. So, um, so right now, you know, you, you think about our our no fail missions, right? I mean, missile warning precision navigation and timing through GPS, um, secure communications, and even launch. 
the um, I'm, I'm quite happy with what I've learned so far about our activities in those no-fail missions uh, and how they're using sort of a mix of, I'll say, traditional vendors as well as some of the new entrants. And, uh, and so far, I've seen no issues with making sure that we actually can achieve those missions. And I'm excited about the opportunity to... Um, to understand better a lot of the different new entrants that are involved with, across the board in space. I think it's an exciting time for the country, an exciting opportunity for anybody who's involved with the space programs, whether you're in the IC, the DOD, or at NASA uh, or commercial. And then I think, I think there's an opportunity to take a, more advantage of commercial than we have maybe in the past. Um, there's some neat things they're doing with design work and engineering work that maybe we could see, is there anything we could learn from that that might add speed to our acquisitions? And I also think that if, if commercial has a capability and we could take advantage of that, that's all about speed at that point in time, right? That, that's, you're not gonna get any, any faster than taking advantage of what you could just buy off the shelf as opposed to develop. And uh, which makes me think of, that, that, that particularly on your last point, um, there are those who think that, um, you know, surveillance or reconnaissance or just whether you want to call it that or not, or photography from space, radar imaging from space, electronic signals collections from space will become a commodity because there are small companies that are in existence today that are providing these as a commodity to various industries, not just to the Department of Defense. Do you see a role for um, uh, your department in the acquisition area of facilitating the utilization of those capabilities for the operational warfighter uh, at the combatant command level, uh, either through the Space Force or directly the US Space Command or directly uh, to the combatant commanders in the field to give them more than what they already have today. Right, so the NRO has a whole uh, commercial systems program office that deals with commercial imagery and they work in partnership with NGA and the commercial sector. And I, I, I would see first going through, if there's additional needs that our community needs here, I would see first going through them to see if they can satisfy those needs before we enter into our own commercial contracts for imagery or say for, or for radar or for EO. Okay. So still filtered through the NRO in your view at this point, not, not as a U.S. Space Force acquisition approach. For now, I would see that. Absolutely. Okay. Can you see that changing in the future? Depends on the need. Right, it depends on the demand signal. I mean, there are a lot of great companies building commercial capabilities, um, but it's easier to build them than to actually make a profit. And you know, sir, as well as I do, right? I mean, if you go into business, you're in there to, to grow, make revenue and make a profit. And if you can't do those, you're, you're not gonna be in business much longer. And so we'll have to give it time and see all these new startups trying to go into the imagery and into the, uh, into the SIGINT markets and into the uh, uh, radar markets, whether or not they, they're profitable and they can stand on their own. And then um, uh, kind of on the same theme, there, you hear over and over again, we have a lot of data that's just laying on the floor. Uh, a lot, lot more collection um, that, that could be better utilized. Do you see um, a need um, in, the, in, in the Space Force on the acquisition side of focusing on, uh, and you mentioned a little bit earlier, AI or some sorts of fusion engines, et cetera, that can data repositories, data lakes, et cetera, that could be um, something that perhaps the US or the Space Force, US Space Force could bring uh, to the table 
that could allow multiple inputs from multiple players, whether they be commercial, Department of Defense, National Reconnaissance Office, and get to answering the questions that a combatant commander may need in the field in a more timely and satisfactory manner. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning are ideal applications to gather large amounts of data to go through them without a human in the loop in some cases to, you know, to, and to uh, get information faster. I mean, information superiority is going to add speed to the Department of Defense in general. And I know there's a lot of great programs out there. The department has their Jake, their joint AI center. Uh, there was a great project that the USDI started a few years back called Maven. And so there's a lot of activities across the department. Um, I, I see sort of the whole fusion machine learning AI thing as more of a department issue that we would play a role in rather than seeing it as the Space Force taking any kind of lead in that. But, um, but you're right, I mean, information superiority is gonna really drive speed uh, those of those who can actually take the, all this data that is sensed and do something with it quicker are the ones who are going to win the battle. And so it's going to be important for the U.S. and important to the department to really be involved like they are today with like with the Jake. Very good. Well, I know I've drifted a little away from your your uh, your mission statement, which is to you know get acquisition going fast and doing the right things and and uh, professionalizing and increasing the output of the force. So. Thank you for your thoughts on these other areas as well. I really appreciate it. And I want to give our audience an opportunity to uh, pitch in and ask questions as well. So at, at this point, I'd like to ask uh, Chris Stone to uh, take over facilitating the Q&A section uh, of our uh, Space Power Forum today. So Chris. Sure thing, sir. So again, uh, if you have questions, you can either type it in the Q&A or you can raise your hand on the raise hand function and then we will we'll go from there. Uh, first question is from Michael Merrow and he says, can you detail how the Space Force has worked to overcome classification barriers for commercial vendors who do not typically work in a classified space? Yeah, that's still a uh... That's still a challenge for us. I have not dug into that very well at all at this point in time. Um, I, I, it's interesting for me coming from a classified world to see just how much the Space Force does in the unclassified world. Um, and uh, so I think there's opportunities for you because a lot of the work is done at the unclassified level, but uh, I have not looked at this issue yet at this point. Okay. Uh, the next question is from Burton Catledge, and he, uh, he asked, why are finite Space Force resources supporting FAA launches from Cape Canaveral and Vandenberg when commercial launch services are available? Shouldn't the FAA commercial launches support come from commercial launch service providers? Um, there you go, that's it. That's a good question. Um, I don't have an answer for you on that one. Um, I know that there, I thought there was pretty clear responsibility between the, the, the department and the FAA um, but I'm not familiar with the specific question there. Awesome. Uh, next question is, is um, from one of our viewers is that in the old 5000 series uh, that the governed BOD acquisitions, it was a requirement to do a industrial based assessment for either approval of new programs or cancellation of programs to make sure that there wasn't any undue negative impacts on second and third tier supply chains and stuff. And as you mentioned, supply chains earlier, um, is there any 
any issues that the acquisition council is looking at or processes to ensure that um, that these types of analyses are done when you're working both speed and and cost. That's a great question. I know that the the the, the folks in uh, ANS acquisition sustainment are responsible for the 5000 series. They've done some magnificent work in terms of these innovative pathways that folks can take advantage of. As far as the industrial base goes and, and, and doing those kind of looks, the SAC, the Space Act Council that, that I'm running has not taken a look at that. And I'm not sure we will. I see that more as an ANS function. The role that we've been playing is more as understanding sort of the architecture across the board from a space perspective, making sure everyone knows what everyone is working on and doing and how those architectures could be driven in the, in the, into the future. And so the, um, there's a great group of folks out in Colorado under General Raymond called the Space Warfare Analysis Center. They do this amazing force design work. And then we take their results and then figure out sort of what we need to build, what we need to buy, what we need to go forward with that. So that's really kind of been our focus, not so much on industrial base. Chris, if I could follow up on that, but I guess a good, the following question would be, given your past experience at the NRO and uh, it, do you have any industrial base concerns today, broadly in the space sector? I think it's absolutely a fantastic time to be in the space business because there's just so many new companies cropping up to do things. And, you know, given what, uh, what's been happening with launch over the past decade and the price coming down so much and launch becoming routine, thanks to amazing companies like SpaceX, um, it's opened up a whole new world because in the old days, as you know, so, you know, we'd build these battle stars that had five, 10 year design lives. And we had to rat hard every component and have all this redundancy. And we had to buy all this custom space hardware to go do that. Not anymore. You, you know, you could make, you could build a vehicle that's a cube set that only wants to last a few months to do its mission. And you could take stuff off the shelf to go do that. And so I think there's, I have personally in my short tenure here, no issues with industrial base that I've seen. It's just an amazing time to be involved with space because of all the opportunities that are out there. Thank you. Thank you. Back to you, Chris. Great. Uh, this next question uh, for you, sir, is from Chris Kinman, and he is asking that because of the fact that there are several space Title 10 and Title 50 programs that may be redundant in some nature, um, what direction do you see um, in dealing with this kind of issue uh, of, of redundant programs between a Title 50 space program and a Title 10 space program? I tell you, so, so when I came into the job, I thought that was going to be an issue, and I've been able to get really good overviews, uh, firehose, but overviews from all the organizations on my side of the fence doing, doing space, and I understand what the other side of the fence is doing in space. I have seen no duplication, and, and I'll tell you, we can't afford duplication um, as a nation. We need, to, we need to be doing programs to get things out there, but, but I have not run into anything that said, oh my goodness, why are they doing that when so-and-so is doing that already? I, I haven't seen it. Awesome. Uh, the next question is from Jack Clark, and he says that he wants to know if you can expand because of the acquisition role for SAFSQ is pretty clear. If you could expand on your architecture and integration roles in relation to other organizations in the in the department and the IC. Yeah. So the um, so we've I mentioned we have this great analysis center called the SWAC. So they do all the force design work. And then we team with them on that and we try to figure out when they're done with that sort of what is the best way to go acquire 
the, the thing that we need. So a great analogy, a great example of that is before I got on board, they did a, a really outstanding missile warning, missile tracking look, and they came up with some architectural concepts from that. And then the SAC, the Space Act Council took that and allocated those requirements and, and, and components of acquisition to a couple of different organizations uh, to go do that within, within, within the, our responsibility. And so, um, so I see that continuing into the future and I see the SAC more as an, ac an acquisition concept strategy kind of group and an integration group to make sure it all comes together. So now that, let's assume we're, we're off doing missile warning, missile tracking. Let's assume that organization A is doing a piece of it, organization B is doing a piece of it. We may use the SAC or other elements that are out there like the, uh, like the, the PIC, the Program Integration Council to actually make sure it all comes together now as a system. And um, I mentioned earlier the, the key of making sure that ground shows up when space shows up so that you actually, when you launch it, you, you could actually use it. I see uh, taking advantage of the Space Acquisition Council to kind of make sure all those things tie together. Great. The, the next question from one of our viewers is, as, as you were, I guess, discussing with the general earlier about tactical ISR in the Space Force, and you were kind of deferring more to the NRO, does that mean you're deferring to the NRO strictly for commercial ISR or tactical ISR, given the fact that, that both the general um, CSO and others have been advocating for Space Force to have their own tactical ISR capability. Yeah, you know, you know I, I haven't thought too much about this. I, I would say that the NRO is world-class experts in ISR, whether it is for national or tactical. They know how to build systems. And so well, I'm making this up. Let's assume we want our own systems. I could envision asking the NRO to build them on our behalf, as opposed to having to teach the Space Force how to go build um, ISR systems. I mean, I can see that, right? So, so the question is, is what capacity capability do we need that we're not getting today? And then we have to figure out then what is the best way to acquire it? Is it build it ourselves? Is it get more commercial? Is it buy commercial satellites and have them run in our behalf? Or is it ask the NRO to go build them for us? We'll have to see. Great. The, this next one is, is from another one of our viewers and it says that Congress was pretty clear in establishing the Space Force that the NRO would remain a separate IC agency. And we talked about that. From your current position and from your prior work in the IC, can you speak to areas you wish to see improved coordination and cooperation between the DOD and the IC and maybe specifically the Space Force and NRO even more directly? Yeah, I will tell you from my time at the NRO and my time at the Space Force here now or the, the Department of the Air Force right now, the uh, relationship could never have been better. I mean, it, it is great. They, we talk all the time. Um, the coordination is fantastic. It has been for years and um, I see no changes and I see no issues. Great. Uh, the next question is from Kurt Hackmeyer, and he's asking essentially about how their industry partners would like to engage, and if, if they are uh, willing to engage with you as they seem to be, where would they connect with you in your office to be able to, uh, to, be able to, to talk about industry uh, concerns and thoughts? Well, I said in 4C855, if they're looking for my office address, the... Um... I plan on, um, towards the end of July, I think I have a speaking engagement at with the National Security Space um, NSSA, and forgive me, Steve Jakes, for not remembering what the acronym stood for. And I'll be talking industry there, and I think after that, I'm talking industry at, at an AIA event in early August. And so folks can grab me you know, during those events, and, and uh, the reason I'm going to go out to those things is so people can interact with me and, and get to know me a little bit better. And uh, we can always follow up later on with an office call in 4C855. Great. 
Uh, this next one is from Chad Millette, and it's asking, with regards to increasing the professionalism of the space acquisition workforce, what is your top priority or requirement? I am still assessing that. I, I need, I, I, again, I mentioned the program management discipline, and I, I think that I've got some amazing people working for us now. And I think the key is, uh, is to really kind of give them the direction I want them to go in. And I have a, a lot of confidence that they'll be able to execute what I need them to do. So, uh, so for now, that's how I'm going to start. I do want one go back for my friend, Steve Jakes, at the National Security Space Alliance. I'm pretty sure that's what the acronym is for. Is that the acronym, guys? Thank you. And uh, so I apologize for not remembering what NSSA stood for. Awesome. This next one is from uh, a Douglas Orleana, and he says that you stated space resilience is a top priority as cyber vulnerabilities through our space systems have a higher likelihood of being exploited. What type of guidance will Space Force be giving to ensure um, that we cyber harden new space assets and how to harden legacy systems who are currently in operations as part of the part of your role? That's a fantastic question. So we do put cyber requirements on all of our systems. Um, on the legacy side, I think the best way to do that since they're up in orbit and you can't touch them is to really make sure that our ground systems are cyber hardened, right? And so to make sure that there's no way to access uh, through our ground systems. And so to me, cyber is one of the most critical things we can be doing for the nation in terms of protecting our systems, both space and ground. And, uh, and we make sure that when we put stuff under contract that they, there is a hard set of requirements for cyber that, that have to be met. Great. This next question is, is from another uh, anonymous viewer, and this one basically kind of goes back to your discussion you were having earlier about um, the satellite acquisition first, and then the ground acquisition seems to lag by month or years. Can you talk about how you plan to change this, this situation where, where ground seems to be left behind? Um, are there any ongoing acquisitions where you're addressing this issue? The um... I, to me, the best way to do it is to make sure that there's an integrated schedule between space and ground. I mean, you could acquire it separately, but there's got to be schedule pieces and milestones and handoffs and testing activities that are under contract at, uh, on both sides of the equation. And then to ruthlessly kind of manage those interfaces and manage that transition and integration. I have not found anything that just yet. There's a couple of things in the back of my head in terms of programs that I'm worried a little bit about the ground systems for. We, we do tend to get ahead with space and then ground thinks they're gonna catch up so they don't have to start right away. And uh, what ends up happening, like we do with all good software programs is we screw it up and then ground slips. And so even though, so ground gets not the same head start space does, and then we have issues and development. And then before you know it, you're late. And um, so I think the other thing to do is to, uh, is to make sure we start the ground systems earlier so that they can keep up with the space systems. And Chris, if I could pile in again on this, just to just to be clear, Mr. Secretary, in, in my mind, when I think about ground systems, of course, there's those associated with the op operation of the satellite, um, whether it be TTNC or uh, data collection delivery. But then there's the user equipment side, which also right. often seems to, to lag and or be disconnected from the program of, of record. And that, it, my experience in the past, that and it may have changed, but that was always the services responsibility to buy their own user equipment. And oftentimes you'd get a, a great capability on orbit and actually the ability, a good ground control system for it, but the user equipment wasn't out there in time to, to use the, the new capability. 
Have you thought about, if that is still the case, have you thought about how best to synchronize the user equipment piece of this? Right, no, I, I actually have, and uh, I hope to use this SpaceX Council for some of that. And it's, sometimes it's not the services' fault all the time. Like for example, we're late, the Space Force is late on um, the M-code receivers right, that, right. that we have to build the first prototype of then to give to the services for GPS. And so, uh, so in some cases it's us that's behind because what we end up doing is like doing the first few versions of it and then making sure there's a production line available and then the services go off and acquire it. And so like on the MCO side of the house, you know, I'm, I'm, that's one thing that's on top of my list is to make sure that we wrap up this year, those MCODE receiver technology so that the services actually can start to build those and take advantage of that capability on GPS. Great, thank you. Great, the, the next question uh, is that Secretary Kendall has spoken about the working group he co-leads with Heidi Shu to prepare for Space Development Agency to transfer under the Space Force on October 1st. Can you talk about any of the planning that's been done, what your goals are for SDA and any worries you may have uh, regarding the transfer? Yeah, so, so I have, um, like I mentioned earlier, I have no worries at all about the transfer. It seems to be going extremely smooth. I think there's an update we have in the next few weeks from now that's on the calendar. Um, SDA is going to come in as a whole. It's not going to change. It's not, there's no restructuring, no change is going to occur. And it's really just a reporting chain difference. Instead of coming up through R&E, they'll report up through the department. Um, what I, I mentioned earlier, what I need SDA to do is I need them to execute. They, they have great vision. They have done an amazing job getting stuff under contract. They are working their plan uh, and they're hitting schedule. I mean, I love their discipline. They are hitting their schedule marks, which is fantastic. I just need them to continue to do the great work that they're currently doing. Awesome. This question is from Samuel Goldfarb, and he's asking what human processes across the IC Space Force DoD can be refined or improved to increase the speed of not just creating new capabilities via acquisitions, but also supporting our warfighters with information or intelligence in conflict or crisis. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I'm looking forward to uh, actually visiting some of the users in the next few weeks. I have not done that quite yet. What I've heard anecdotally is that, you know, we all deliver systems and they all have a different user interface. And I've got to imagine on the warfighter, it's tough to have to learn 8 million different interfaces for capabilities that are being delivered. And so one thought that I know is out there is how do we sort of have a common user interface standard so that there's the same look and feel for, uh, for new capabilities that are delivered so that folks can not have to learn each system uniquely every time, but I'm interested in learning more about that as I go visit some of the user community in the next few weeks. Awesome. The next question up is from Chris Cavellos, and uh, probably messed that name up, sorry. The digital engineering term is all the buzz these days. What is your vision plan for incorporating digital engineering solutions into programs? Oh well, yeah, there's, there's no plan. We're actually doing it. I mean, General Raymond set that tone a couple of years back and for the Space Force to be the first digital service, I, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I, one of the reasons why I wanted to come into the Space Force and come back was because I really believe in that. I think digital engineering will give us a significant advantage into the future in terms of speed. The folks at the SWAC are already taking advantage of that and industry starting to come up to speed as well. And uh, so I'm all in. Awesome. This, this next question kind of goes back to the discussion you and the general had um, regarding uh, consolidation and having the Army and Navy with different, different programs as also as being major users. Uh, the question is, how will you coordinate with the Army and Navy, the major users of many of your systems like SATCOM and 
positioning, navigation, and timing to make sure that their user segments are coordinated with your space systems? Right, now that's a great question. And again, I, I you know, my plan is to use the Space Acquisition Council as an integrating function for, at the architecture level in terms of um, the user systems, the ground systems, and, uh, and our space systems. Great. Um, the next question is, is, regard, is from Joe Franchino, and he's asking about, you're, you talk about bringing in SDA unchanged. Do you see SDA's approach to acquisitions influencing space systems command timelines and acquisition strategies uh, or, or something else? Hello, Joe Franchino. It's great to it's a great question. Thank you. And I hope you're doing well. Um, I think it will influence it, right? Because they're they're doing smaller systems. They're showing they can do match speed. They're showing that the, they're able to take uh, more risk in terms of speed and they're doing fixed price contracting. So I think it's going to have a big influence on a lot of things that we do. And so um, um, I see it already influencing things. Great. Uh, this next question is kind of going back to your conversation about the SWAC and the uh, Space Acquisition Council. Um, how does the Space Acquisition Council, if you could give more detail, how do they engage with the SWAC? Is the SWAC leading sort of the direction that the Acquisition Council takes, or is it the other way around? So I set the agenda for the council. So as a good example, yesterday we had uh, the SWAC come in and brief us on uh, one of their upcoming studies that they're working on and its current status of that. So uh, so we set we set the agenda. I've only I've only done two of them so far, and uh, you know we were just planning out for future ones uh, more of an integration kind of role to make sure that we are making sure things do come together architecturally across the services. So uh, yeah, so right now the agenda is set by me, and the focus has been um, is going to change into more of the integration role. Great. Uh, this, this next question is, is sort of back to the, the industrial base related uh, issues and acquisitions. Um, as you mentioned, ANS uh, has the, the lead for such things as industrial policy or the Defense Production Act that has been used in a lot of um, pieces or sub-tier supply chain issues regarding some major space programs in the past. Um, and of course, the president's been, been leveraging that for other reasons. Is, is there any issues with the sub-tier supply chain that you see potentially impacting the future programs? And do you see any partnerships using the DPA Title III um, in answering those? You know, I really have not dug into any of that at this point in time, so I, I really don't have any comment or question, answer for that one. Great. And Chris, I think we're, we're getting close to the end here. Maybe one more question, and then I, I have a question. and. And then I want to give save a little time for the secretary to give his wrap up on any thoughts that uh, we may have you wanted to reemphasize and we may have missed on. Sure. Uh, the last question here um, is from uh, Jeffrey Trauberman, and it's uh, Have you had any chance to give thoughts on any uh, acquisition approaches, uh, any new acquisition approaches that you might bring to the space launch mission? Now, not at this point in time. I know the team is off looking at what happens beyond NSSL phase two. And uh, at this point in time, I haven't had a chance to really look at that. Thanks, Chris. And actually, Jeff stole my question. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're going to go down the same path. And, you know, Mr. Secretary, you're so kind to have joined us today. You know, you've only been in the chair six weeks. 
And I'm going to take you up on that offer to come back in six months because uh, I think it'll be an enriching conversation to see uh, what you, after you've done your assessment and you've had a chance to run that council for a while, uh, the, these forums, the authorities you've been given to see how it's working. Right. And, uh, and it'll be great to have you to have you come back. So thanks for offering to do that. And I'd, I'd like to give you a few minutes here just to, for any closing thoughts or remarks you'd like to make. Uh, thank you, sir, for the opportunity today. And it's great to see you again. And thank you to the Mitchell Institute for, for supporting this. I think the big takeaway that I want to leave folks with is I think there are ways to get, gain speed. I think there are ways to gain resiliency. And I, I think one of the key things in project management discipline that I need help with from industry is, is that partnership. I, I really need industry to help us by giving us realistic proposals when we compete things by delivering to your plans. I mean, execute your contracts. There's no better way to help support the nation by then delivering on, on cost, on schedule and meeting your requirements. I mean, that is what's gonna get stuff into, into our activities faster. That's what's gonna get capabilities into our warfighters hands faster. So I really need your help in ensuring that we could execute on plan and that the Space Force and that the department can be successful. And, and there really truly is a sense of urgency out there. I mean, we have threats against our systems. We have threats from near-peer adversaries. We need speed. We need execution. We have got to really be able to protect our nation, deter if we need to, defend if we need to, and defeat if we have to. And so it's really important. Um, the operational imperatives that the department has laid out are critical. What we do for space to support those imperatives is really, uh, really critical. And we all need to work together and it's really all about making sure we can deliver our programs on time. Terrific. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of our Space Power Forum. Again, a big thanks to Secretary Calvelli for taking the time to join us today. And to you, our audience, from all of us here at the Mitchell Institute, Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence, we wish you a great day.